Hey there. In Chicago, an essential worker named Jamie Gentry did something a lot of folks have been doing recently. She opened a gazillion browser tabs and scoured them all to find a COVID vaccine appointment. It was just this whole series of refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. All day, into the evening. She finally found one at an urgent care clinic. She jumped on it, then realized she'd accidentally booked two spots with them. So she called the clinic to fix it. And that's when they told her, oh, hey, uh, by the way, we'll be doing a uh, 15-minute consult before your shot. And oops, oh, we don't take your insurance. So that consult's going to be uh, 300 bucks. Or they said you could take advantage of our special. It would be $200 instead of the $300, but that I would have to pay it up front in order to get the shot. Yep. Enter Mariah Wolfel, a reporter for WBEZ, the local public radio station. Mariah got Jamie's story and she called a state health official to say, hey, is this even allowed? And the official was like, uh, no, not really. Providers get the vax for free. They're supposed to work out any administration fees with an insurance company or from the government. She told Mariah, we've got a hotline to report this kind of thing, okay? Could you let people know? She told Mariah she had already gotten 40 to 50 calls. And this is before Mariah and WBEZ put the whole thing on blast. After Mariah's story came out, like that same day, the clinic's medical director emailed Mariah to say they were going to give refunds to the 20 or so other people they've already charged. She wrote, this is 100% our bad. Great. One down. How many more to go? This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about the cost of health care. My name's Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter, and I like a challenge. So my job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life. And I know we're still in kind of a take-your-pick situation here, but the cost of health care, it definitely looks like a contender. And bring you a show that is entertaining, empowering, and useful. And it's time to check in on the pandemic, especially now that vaccinations are really ramping up. COVID vaccines are supposed to be free, but this is America. So, of course, we've been wondering, how are people going to try to make a buck on them? And how will we find out? Local reporters like Mariah Wolfel have been spotting scams here and there, which is like, yeah, go get them. I've seen stories from Denver, New Mexico, too. There's just no way of knowing how many more are out there. It's like whack-a-mole. And then there's Philadelphia. That is one place where the good, the bad, and the ugly have been very much on display. Big and bold. The good is for real, and it's great. We'll be getting to it in the second half of this episode. The ugly is everywhere. We'll be getting to that, too. And bad? It comes with the kind of chutzpah we just don't see every day. Or maybe we do. This kind of destructive chutzpah is definitely around. But it does not always get called out the way it did here. And for that, once again, we've got local reporters to thank. You may have actually seen the headline on this story. It made national news. For a while, a group led by a 22-year-old with no experience in healthcare but with a healthy interest in making money was the city government's leading partner in its vaccination program. That's the headline. The details? They are worth a look. Here's Nina Feldman, a reporter with WHYY, Philadelphia's public radio station. So I first really heard of the group Philly Fighting COVID at an event that they were hosting with the Philadelphia Health Department. It was billed as Philadelphia's first mass vaccination clinic. It's at the convention center, a big site right in the middle of town. You could vaccinate thousands of people a day there. And the city press release said this group, Philly Fighting COVID, 
They are our partner for this whole vaccination effort. You want a vaccine? Hit up their website. This was early January. And this was really the first time that anybody in the general public in Philadelphia was given an option to reserve your spot in line, essentially, for the vaccine. So it was a big deal. This event was exciting. And um, I went to just cover it as a straight-ahead news story. It's a thing. People are getting shots. The mayor's there. So is the director of Philly Fighting COVID. Andre DeRoshin, who's a 22-year-old graduate student at Drexel University here in Philly, um, was at the mic, you know, talking with the mayor about how great this event was. Andre says, we've been doing a ton of testing, and now we're going to take what we've learned and do a ton of vaccinating. And our six months of work has led us to this day. I remember thinking, that's interesting. I'm a health reporter. I've been covering the pandemic since day one. And this guy? This group? Not big players. And the city's putting them in charge? This was not the natural choice, as far as I know. So that was the first thing that just sort of surprised me. And then when everyone's making speeches for the press, DeRoshan and his chief science officer make claims that Nina knows from her reporting are not true, like that they've done half the testing in Philadelphia so far. And that was just very easy statistic to poke a hole in. And, you know, people do that stuff all the time in press conferences. People inflate numbers and make grandiose claims. So again, I wasn't ready to say, you know, this guy's a fraud because of that. But it did perk my ears up a little bit. And then when Nina asked questions, the answers were unusual. Like she asked city officials, how much does this cost? And they were like, uh, ask Andre. And I thought that was kind of odd. And Andre said, oh, you know, I'm actually funding it right now, along with a couple of friends. My philanthropy, man. And yeah. so is my friends. Yeah. Yeah, we got to do good things and bad times. And I said, you know, OK, wow, that's impressive. Like, how much money are you putting up for this? But he said. Um, I can't actually tell you those specifics. Um, but I can tell you it's a really nice Mercedes. I, I don't have an intuitive grasp of what that number actually is. <laughs> well, you know, me either. I, yeah. like, I don't really even know the difference between like a crappy Mercedes and a really fancy Mercedes. It's just like not. Yeah. So that didn't really tell me much. But it told you a little bit about the frame of reference of the person who's using it. Exactly. A, yeah, yeah. His whole tone just struck me as 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 suspicious, frankly. My initial instinct was to go home and start Googling him and figure out what this guy's deal was because it didn't make sense to me that the city would work with somebody with so little experience and so many holes in his sort of presentation of what he was doing. And like those things all stood out to me immediately. I thought to myself, there's a story here. So Nina went home and filed her straight news story. Hey, they vaccinated people and started Googling Andre DeRoshan. And it paid off quick. You know, we didn't have to do that much digging to start figuring out that DeRoshan's resume was entirely inflated. His official bio said Andre had founded a film department, which turned out to be a club at his high school while he was a student there. The bio also said he had founded a nonprofit focused on air quality. Yeah, here is one of the few places online you can find evidence of that project's existence. Hello, Drexel University. I'm Andre DeRoshan, and this is my video resume. Yes, that is a college application video. Nina kept digging with a couple of colleagues. And meanwhile, people at the vaccination site started talking about what they were seeing. And here's where it goes from, this looks like a weird caper, to this looks really bad. The big revelation came from a nurse who was volunteering, Katrina Lipinski. It definitely rubbed me the wrong way to watch Andre walk pretty openly from the vaccine area 
over to his belongings and packed, I don't know how many vaccines. Yep. DeRoshan later admitted he'd taken four doses home at the end of the day and jabbed his friends. He told reporters, well, we had leftovers. They were going to go bad otherwise. We, we'd called everybody we knew. Yeah, it definitely sounds like they had a lot of leftovers. One person who was there described the end of the day when they were trying to use up doses as a free-for-all. A lot of the volunteers were, um, and this is language I'm using from a source, running around injecting one another. We looked up the full quote later. The source actually said they were running around like kids. The source called it a fun, let's vaccinate each other type situation. And this frenzy to use up all these leftover doses sounds especially bad when you consider that other sources told Nina and her colleagues that earlier that day, they'd seen people, older, vulnerable people, getting turned away in tears. There was literally 85-year-old, 90-year-old people standing there like with printed appointment confirmation saying, I don't understand why I can't get vaccinated on 85. We're talking about 85-year-olds in wheelchairs who were, let's just say that again, holding printed appointment confirmations. DeRoshan liked to sell his lack of experience in healthcare as a positive. He was like, hey, I'm a disruptor. This did not sound like the kind of disruption you would want. Also, it turned out that DeRoshan's group, Philly Fighting COVID, remember how he told Nina it was his philanthropy? Well, by the time he talked with her, they had reincorporated as a for-profit. Somebody sent Nina a video of DeRoshan giving a PowerPoint slide presentation on the big plan, vaccinate a million people with the government providing the vaccines for free. Now, this is the juicy slide. How are we getting paid? We're going to be billing insurance companies. $24 per vaccine. I just told you how many vaccines we want to do. You can do the math in your head. Okay, I just did the math. 24 bucks may not be a ripoff price, but times a million doses, that's 24 million bucks. That's pretty juicy. As Nina and her colleagues started reporting what they were finding, the city said it was cutting ties with DeRochin's group, effective immediately. DeRochin said, hey, he may have made some mistakes, but his group had administered almost 7,000 doses. They did the job. They deserved thanks. He had done nothing wrong. Others disagreed. The deputy health commissioner, who'd been running the whole vaccine program, resigned. Her boss said, yeah, sorry. Oops. We had a lot of people we wanted to vaccinate quickly. Uh, and we had an organization that we had worked with that looked like it had the capability of doing that. So I hope people can understand why it is uh, on the surface this looked like a good thing. That might have been more convincing if there hadn't been other organizations to turn to. But... Philadelphia has several big medical centers like the University of Pennsylvania and Temple University, just to name a couple. And it has a group that isn't as established, but is definitely the partner you'd want to look at if you were at all interested in addressing the needs of a city where white people are not the majority. That is the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium, a nonprofit group created and led by a board-certified physician, Dr. Ala Stanford. She has been out there addressing needs that other players did not and doing it in ways that others do not. In normal times, she's a surgeon, but she has put her practice on hold for almost a year. Last spring, she read the news. Black people in Philadelphia were dying more and getting tested less. Black people were less likely to have a primary care doc who could refer them for a test. To go to a drive-up testing site, you needed a car. 
black Philadelphians were less likely to own one. And in the early days, people were getting bills for COVID tests. She went out in a rented van and started testing people in black neighborhoods for free. Next, she set up pop-up clinics in church parking lots, meeting people at places they trusted. She raised money on GoFundMe, brought on volunteers, medical professionals, and tested thousands and thousands of people. No one asked us to do it. It wasn't our job. It was that African-Americans, their lives were not being valued, and we decided collectively that we were going to change that. But she did not get a heads up that the city was ready to take on a partner for mass vaccinations until suddenly Philly fighting COVID was that partner. out on the news like everybody else. I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I wonder how that <laughs> happened. Dr. Stanford is talking here with the moderator of a town hall the Black Doctors Consortium hosted on Facebook at the end of January. And really that question, I wonder how that happened. It's rhetorical. In a TV interview, she named what she called the elephant in the room. And that's the implicit bias, injustice, and racism. If you look at everything on paper in terms of the experience, in terms of the earned trust in the community, we exhibited all of those qualities consistently. We're the operation with licensed doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, all of whom were asked to show their credentials, their resumes. We needed letters of recommendation before we could even start. So it's unclear to me how this organization, if they were judged with the same scrutiny, was even ever able to get off the ground. I think we have to look not just in Philadelphia, but the deep-rooted problem that allows you to look at an organization that has been doing the work and overlooks them primarily for another group that's unestablished, younger, not led by a physician, and white. It came out that the deputy health commissioner, the one who ended up resigning, had been passing extra information along to Philly fight in COVID. Information Dr. Stanford said she was not getting. Dr. Stanford didn't suggest an explicit corrupt quid pro quo or even a deliberate intention to discriminate. Just an outcome that may be shocking, but not necessarily surprising. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised because I'm a black woman in America. and I've lived enough years, so I'm not surprised, but I am disappointed. And she's talking about disappointing results, including Once Philly fighting COVID started doing vaccinations, they just dumped commitments they'd made to help community groups with testing. One woman who runs a neighborhood nonprofit told WHYY about an email she got from Philly fighting COVID about why they were backing out of a testing event. And it said, we're going to discontinue testing altogether. You know, sorry about the short notice. Um, The short notice was that they were supposed to be at my site 20 minutes after that email was sent. Ouch. They were not the only group to get ditched like that either. One pastor said, they just ghosted us. All of this was exactly the kind of thing ALA Stanford had set out to address, providing equitable access, which includes building trust. Choosing a partner like Philly fighting COVID does not do a lot to assure anybody who's wondering if the people running things really have their best interest as a priority. And ugly inequities continue. By late February, Rite Aid pharmacies had done more vaccination than almost any other provider in Philadelphia, and only 4% of those vaccinations have gone to black people. In a city that's more than 40% black, that's ugly. But we've got to talk about the good part. I want to spend the rest of this episode talking about what Dr. Stanford and her colleagues have 
done. Because that, that is definitely good. And it's got lessons for all of us. That's right after this. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with the big healthcare outfit Kaiser Permanente. We'll have some more information about Kaiser Health News at the end of this episode. We've talked about some of the ways Dr. Sanford made adaptations from the beginning to meet people where they were, to remove barriers other players didn't even know they were putting up. And now with vaccines, there are new challenges. When she was able to start vaccinating people in January, she went on social media and made her pitch. Black people are dying from coronavirus at a rate three times greater than white Americans. In Philadelphia, 90% of the vaccine that has been administered is to non-black people. I understand the hesitancy. I understand the atrocities that black people have endured previously and current day. She said, Please don't let that stop you from protecting yourself and your loved ones. Here's where to find our registration form. Please complete it, even if you don't know for sure you want the shot. If you know you want it, complete it. And if you know you don't want it, still complete it. And let's keep talking about it. She ran vaccination events at churches in people's communities to keep things accessible and intimate. And she kept looking for ways to adjust the process to have the best shot at vaccinating the folks who needed it most and who might miss out. One thing she quickly stopped doing, using social media to announce late-breaking vaccination opportunities that disadvantaged older people who are extra vulnerable and who may not be on social media so much. It also disadvantaged a lot of essential workers. People who were at work, but not at a job where they could just say, I'm going to take off. I can go get a vaccine. She also found that scheduling appointments meant older folks in black communities took on extra burdens. If you tell them 10... They come at seven. You know, folks are used to standing in line. And usually when you show up early, that means you have a better chance of getting it. She did not like keeping elderly folks who are the most vulnerable to COVID waiting in the cold and then seeing other people just showing up at their appointed time and expecting a shot right away. We got to figure this out, how to do this better. So she switched things up again. She made appointments for a given day, not a time of day. Show up on that day. It's first come, first served. And she allowed folks to register on site with a paper form. She also took to the media to tell people, if you are not from this vulnerable community, please do not come here for a shot. Here she is at a bustling vaccination event, breaking it down for WHYY's Nina Feldman. We're saying, you see that 80-year-old black woman right there? She needs it more than me. And she's not registered. And she didn't have social media. She filled out this paper form. And right now is when she could get a ride. And this lady's going to get a vaccine first because she's more at risk of getting sick and more at risk of dying than you are. And then Dr. Stanford had another idea. A vaxathon. 24 hours a day. No appointments, just show up. She did it on a weekend when more people would have time to come stand in line. Bring ID that shows you're eligible to get the vaccine and evidence that you live in a zip code with a lot of COVID cases, which in Philadelphia meant black and brown neighborhoods. She got the sports arena for Temple University. The lines went for blocks. She told reporters she hoped to vaccinate 2,000 people. They did 4,000 before the weekend was done. Jenny Johnson is 73. 
She told WHYY's Kenny Cooper that she waited outside in the cold for three hours and she had no complaints. I don't know too much about how Philadelphia's handled it, but I know how the black doctors have handled it. Been phenomenal. And of course, there was a reason people were willing to wait for hours in the cold. Here's Dr. Stanford. Well, it talks about how great the need is. People want to live. They want to get back to a new normal. I personally think it also shows the trust that people have in us coming out. um, And that feels good. This is not 100% a feel-good story. The Philadelphia Inquirer later published an essay from a woman who wrote that she had stood out in the cold for 12 hours. She called the experience grueling and dehumanizing. The Vaxathon, she wrote, was not a feel-good story at all. It was a story, quote, about the black community being left to fend for itself without enough resources, unquote. Dr. Stanford herself said she would not do another similar event without more support from the city. To date, even with Dr. Stanford's work, black people are seriously underrepresented for COVID vaccinations. They are seriously overrepresented for getting COVID and for dying from it. That's in Philadelphia and around the country. But still, there's definitely something to celebrate here and a lot to learn. Dr. Stanford and the Black Doctors Consortium did not make time to talk with me, which I actually support. I mean, she's busy. She and her group have now vaccinated more than 25,000 people, and more than 82% have been people of color. I mean, imagine what she could have gotten done by now if the city had made better choices to start with. She's doing this six days a week, and there have clearly been some late nights. And did I mention she also has three kids? She deserves a break. A lot of the tape we've used comes from that Facebook Live session she did. It was two hours long. Toward the end, the moderator asked her, what are the big lessons about our healthcare system, the ones that'll go beyond the pandemic? And I want to play you most of her long answer. So one, it's the caregiver, and two, it's the person receiving the care. So for the caregiver, as healthcare providers, we all have to acknowledge our own implicit bias. And what I mean by that are the things you do that are subconsciously potentially doing harm to a patient. For instance, Black people are often denied appropriate pain medication because of stereotypes that they're strong and can take it or they're going to abuse drugs. Not true. And those stereotypes are systemic, baked into our society. There's been studies about this that show that most medical students that come in already have these preconceived notions and myths, quite frankly, about Black patients before they even come in the door. So I think as healthcare professionals, and I mean this to my white doctors and nurses and other health professions, as well as Black, white, Black, all of Mm -hmm. us have with our own biases. And you really have to work on it every single day, every day, because we took an oath to first do no harm. And failing to care for someone properly because you're allowing those biases to operate on you unchecked, that is harmful. Next, she's got a prescription for patience. You know, either a lot of folks of color don't go to the doctor or when they go, they're already expecting it to be an unpleasant experience. So what I'm saying to the person receiving the care is decide it's going to be different this time. It's realizing the power that you have. 
And I know it feels like you're powerless when you go to the doctor, but you're really not, you know, and advocating for yourself. So that doc may have 15 minutes when they're in with you, but that's your 15 minutes. So if you're coming for a particular reason, you have your questions written down before you come in, right? You might say to the doc, hey, um, how much time do we have, doc? Because I want to make sure I get all my questions in. I know how busy you are, but I want to make sure we get everything addressed. So number one, have an agenda. Number two, don't go alone. Always bring someone with you when you go to the doctor, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes your mind might wander or they say something that's disconcerting and you're not thinking. So you have someone there. Right. She says in a pandemic, when bringing someone in person is a much heavier lift, you do what we've done with everything else. Go virtual. You say, do you mind if I call my brother on the phone, call my sister to listen in? Because I sometimes don't get everything and I just want to make sure I have another pair of ears, right? That's all advocating, but not saying, you better treat me the way I deserve to be treated. Right, right, right. I want to make sure I get everything right, Doc, because I'm committed and you and me are going to make me the healthiest person I can be, right? I wanted to play all of that for you for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, that advice about how to effectively advocate for yourself in the doctor's office, that is like a bullseye for a show that's about practical ways of defending ourselves against the cost of healthcare. Ineffective care is expensive in dollars and cents and in time and suffering. And second, Dr. Stanford's description of how our society's racist biases mean the medical system imposes extra costs on people who aren't white? That is an important story for this show, too. Ultimately, the cost of healthcare amounts to barriers to getting the help we need to take care of ourselves. Dr. Stanford is telling us and showing us through her work what we can do to address those barriers. And of course, she's not the only one. As we were putting this episode together, a doctor and public health advocate named Rhea Boyd published an essay in the New York Times with the headline, Black People Need Better Vaccine Access, Not Better Vaccine Attitudes. She pointed to gaps that Dr. Stanford had been working to address, including better access to the vaccine itself and access to credible information from trusted sources. And as it happened, Dr. Boyd had just been doing some work on that herself, helping develop a project called The Conversation, Between Us and About Us. It kicked off in early March with a video hosted by comedian and CNN host W. Kamau Bell. Hello, Black America and people who pay attention to what Black folks are doing. My name is W. Kamau Bell. There's good news out there. There's a COVID-19 vaccine. Yay! But the bad news is, as Black folks, it's hard to trust what's going on. So what do we do? Well, we turn to people we can trust. Black folks. But not just your uncle at the cookout. No, no, no. Actually, not him at all. I'm talking about black scientists, black doctors, and black nurses. He runs through a quick series of very direct questions with very direct answers from some of those black medical experts. And what about side effects? Uh, Soreness from the injection site. I had a little bit of arm soreness. Arm sore? Is that a side effect? My arm's sore right now. The common things, soreness at the injection site, headache fever, maybe a swollen lymph nodes. Is this like one of those pharmaceutical commercials where at the end they talk real fast about the side effects and it's like, you're also going to get hair from your eyeballs and vampirism. (laughs) 
my sister texted me um, the second day uh, after I got the first vaccine, and I remember she was like, "Are you a zombie yet?" And we just laughed, like, "No, I'm not." So the big answer is no, <laughs> and so on. It's great. We'll link to it from wherever you're listening to this episode. Full disclosure, it's backed by the Kaiser Family Foundation, the same folks behind our pals at Kaiser Health News, which I found out when I asked Dr. Boyd for an interview. We talked. She says she's been watching Philadelphia's Black Doctors Consortium for months. As a Black healthcare worker in particular, I related to what they were doing. Like every Black healthcare worker that I know has been trying to prop up something in the middle of systems that don't serve Black folks well. Not just for Black folks, for poor folks, for communities of color generally, for people who are undocumented, for people who don't have health insurance. I mean, Black healthcare workers have been sprinting. And to see that they're sprinting too, it just, it kind of lifts you a little bit. It's like, I'm not sprinting alone. Many of us have been trying to prop up things inside those systems that are equitable, that are just, that do think just about the needs of the most marginalized and get rid of all of the other bureaucratic barriers that separate people from care that they should and are deserving of receiving. So I love watching what they're doing. I, you know, am sprinting alongside them and just am so supportive. I told you we'd bring you the bad, the ugly and the good this time. I hope we've come through. I'll catch you soon. By the way, we are looking at some adjustments to our publishing schedule just for the next little bit. So to keep posted on what we're doing, you may want to start getting our newsletter, which I got to say is pretty good. You can sign up at armandalegshow.com slash newsletter. That's armandalegshow.com slash newsletter. Till next time, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, edited by Marion Wang. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raimunda is our audio wizard. Our music is from Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Nina Feldman and Kenny Cooper at WHYY, to Mariah Wolfel at WBEZ, to Ali Velshi and Ellen Frankman at NBC, to doctors Ala Stanford and Rhea Boyd, to Kelly Osmondson at Kaiser Family Foundation, and to David Gura. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America, an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor, this guy, Henry J. Kaiser. He had his hands in a lot of different stuff, like really different. He paved roads. He built a big chunk of the U.S. cargo fleet for World War II, made cars, including the Jeep, made aluminum foil. Huh? Kaiser Aluminum stands behind every box of foil. Behind every box? Yes, that's from a real commercial. When he died more than 50 years ago, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash Kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast, and Tanya English is senior editor for broadcast innovation at Kaiser Health News. They are editorial liaisons to this show. Thanks to Public Narrative. That's a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. Finally, thank you to some of the folks who have pitched in recently at armandalegshow.com slash support. Thanks this time to Matt Shea, Stephanie Cook, Stephanie Heglison, and Meredith Kalman. Thank you.